Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And this week we are getting into a category which um, the last time we saw this category was in the 80s, um, but we're going back 30 years to Best Special Effects 1954, um, a time when the special effects are sometimes not so special when viewed uh, <laughs> from uh, from 2021. But uh, this was your pick. Uh, you wanted to do this for this episode. Why did you decide on this category and this year? Well, I did happen to look at the nominees from this year, and there seemed to be quite a lot of crossover between them. Um, we've got two submarine dramas. Um, we've got two of them dealing with the, the perils of atomic warfare. And, um, so there seemed to be quite a, a fair amount of crossover, um, and they seem to represent these movies the mood of the moment very well um and then of course this is the first year where special effects was a proper category um with nominees before that it was pretty much just citations um until 1977 uh, when the category was renamed visual effects um so i thought it would be interesting to discuss the kind of special effects that were going on at this time and the movies themselves looked interesting all right and yes, they are very interesting and a surprising, like you say, a lot of thematic crossover. The nominees, the nominees were Hell and High Water, not to be confused with Hell or High Water. Uh, <laughs> them, and the winner was Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, a Walt Disney production. So. Let's begin, I guess, with Hell and High Water, um, and I'm going to have to continually emphasize the and, because if I don't think about it, I'll definitely say or, um, because that is the more common expression, isn't it? It's usually one or the other. You don't usually don't get both. I th usually I've heard or, not and. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was both Hell and High Water involved in this story so this one yeah a story of atomic peril and uh, the dangers of you know the commies getting their hands on an atomic bomb and using it for subterfuge um what did you make of this film well it's samuel fuller um who did the absolutely wonderful pickup on south street the year before this mm -hmm. and this one's not so wonderful <laughs> um, and it certainly isn't as good as Hell or High Water either um, but I think I do think it holds some interest mainly because of the the amount of concern that America seems to have a, a panic um, that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks are going to be avenged um, and it seems like in this particular era with the Cold War and everything um, about to begin, there's not a lot of global trust between nations at all. You know, it, this is supposed to be a time of peace. The war's supposed to be over, but it very much feels as if um, American society is, is worried that um, what they used uh, against Japan will be used against them. Mm hmm. Yeah, and this one, 
Uh, and the, not only against them, but like blamed on them, right? Um, that if there's another atomic attack, uh, that the the blame will shift to the U.S. because they were the ones who did it in the first place. Um, but it's an interesting um, alignment of uh, nations in this in 1950s because, of course, uh, by 1954, the Germans and the Japanese were back to being the good guys. Um, and the new bad guys were the Chinese and the Russians. So we see the former enemies, Japan and uh, the U.S., kind of working together to face this new threat, um, kind of reflecting the new global uh, alignment and the new global alliances, um, which, again, is, is interesting to see um, how quickly kind of... I, I wouldn't go so far as to call this propaganda, especially after we saw... Um, Blood on the Sun a couple of weeks ago, which kind of set, set the bar pretty high for that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's definitely selling a particular worldview, um, put it that way. And how the worldview had shifted in the nine years between those two movies is, is reflected in it. And as with Blood on the Sun, I think we have some casual racism going on here um, with this one, with the, the Chinese friend... Um, that's sort of used in this ruse um, where he sort of attempts to befriend a Japanese soldier and make him think he's on his side. Um, and I thought it was a little bit... Um, it, sort of, it was sort of lumping the Asians together, oh, he'll do, kind of thing. That's, and the way that he was represented as their friend felt a little bit token to me. Yeah. Yeah, he he is only introduced in like two scenes, one where he's playing the ukulele and being kind of a goofball and then gladly, you know, putting his life in jeopardy to get this uh information. Um yeah, he he's always he's not portrayed great. He's not really portrayed as a uh three-dimensional person. Although I did think it was very funny his um well, unintentionally funny when they're preparing to toss him in with the prisoner and uh, he asks Richard Widmark to rough him up a bit so it looks real. And he says, um, I, or the, you know, um, Professor Denise uh, translates what he says as, if you hit him, he says it won't hurt. And that could definitely be taken two ways. I mean, Richard Widmark could have thought, well, challenge accepted and really clocked him one. Um it's just a very funny line and frankly, a kind of ridiculous line. I mean, I don't care how much I like a person or respect them. If they punch me in the face, it's going to hurt. Um, so I get that it's kind of a poetic expression of respect, maybe even like love, but I, I still, I don't think it works because it's just ridiculous. That quick, quick sidebar into that one very weird line but getting back to what you were saying yeah the character who i believe is um his name is chin lee uh in the film yeah definitely uh a lot we can put him that character in the category of yeah casual uh slightly well-meaning but still casual racism it's like they're showing him as you know this is one of the good ones you know that he's on our side they're not all bad you know that seems to be kind of what these characters are there to say uh, which is pretty bad 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, when they set off in the submarine, I'm thinking, and this, this, I might repeat the same thing later on with another of these films, actually quite interchangeable, Helen Highwater and um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, honestly. Um, but when they set off in the submarine, I'm thinking, here we go. This is going to be good. The adventure is going to begin. And it just kind of lost me along the way. And it became quite convoluted when it didn't need to be, especially towards the end. Um, but one thing I will say that I think is positive about the film is the portrayal of Denise. Um, because they introduce the character by giving her a speech in which she says she isn't a woman, she's a scientist um, and she doesn't need to be looked after. And while I don't think they fully follow through with that, I, th I like that... Uh, the film shows her getting into an altercation with a man and the men are not seen in the best light on the sh on the uh, submarine. Um, it, that's treated semi-seriously, whereas I think another film might have brushed that off a bit. Um, and later she does end up being part of the final mission. So I feel like she does have some agency more than you'd expect in a film from this era, which might be to do with Samuel Fuller actually um, with a, a lot of interesting female characters in, in his films throughout the years um, but I think even though you know she's eventually going to end up with Adam that character as written is not as sexist as it could be no yeah it, it is actually pretty progressive in that sense I agree that it doesn't fulfill the promise completely um, but she definitely does have a lot to do in the film, and she is a pretty uh, integral part of what happens. Um, she even gets to shoot a guy, uh, which is, you know, progressive, right? Um, and she speaks, like, every language, which is handy to have on a, you know, on this kind of ragtag team of international crew. Um, and she also speaks Chinese and Jap has a bit of Japanese and... Yeah, she can she can do everything. Yeah, she's a woman with knowledge. I think that's the point I was trying to make that Yeah. She was integral. You're right, she was integral to a positive outcome for them in this. Um mm -hmm. but the behind the scenes story is a lot less progressive. Um because <laughs> she got the do you know about this? Um I think so, but go on. She got the part because she was the mistress of of Daryl Zanuck, um, and her surname, Darvi, Bella Darvi, this is, um, is an amalgamation of Daryl and Virginia, Virginia being Daryl Zanuck's wife. So in some <laughs> insane way, he's named his mistress after his wife, <laughs> which is just shocking behaviour. Yeah, really shows like a level of self-possession and confidence that I guess only you could have if you're Daryl Zanuck. Um, because that's pretty ballsy. Uh, assuming, assuming his wife wasn't kind of a part of the process, she like goes to see the movie and sees that last name. It's like, are you seriously, Darvi? You're not even trying to hide this? Um, but yeah. 
Yeah, he he had to rename her, I guess, because he felt that her uh, her real name was a little too Polish uh, to fly at the time. Yeah. What did you think of Richard Vidmark in this? Um, he is. I mean, he doesn't have a huge range as an actor. I think he's in his wheelhouse here. Um, he was yeah. also in his wheelhouse in the Swarm. As just a kind of no-nonsense military type um, with maybe a bit of a soft side to him, but, you know, one that won't get in the way of doing his job. Um, so I thought he was good as the captain. This is the as the kind of um, undercover captain, I guess. When he first arrives, it's almost like a noir, you know. He gets a mysterious package. He's wearing the suit. He gets a he puts the money in his coat pocket in a very noiry way and then goes to an abandoned warehouse. So and that's, you know, obviously his element as well. So the script and the film are very much made for an actor like him. Yeah, he's good. I was I kept thinking that the character was we were being told that the character was such a mercenary and really he wasn't. <laughs> you know that um there's only a couple of scenes where that happens and there's one where um, the actual professor, who's I can't remember who plays the professor now, um, tells him that uh, Victor Franken. Yeah, tells him that actually, if you read the contract, he's got the final say in everything. Um, Richard Vidmark has to back down because he doesn't want to go on um, to another part of the mission. Um, but I feel like that the characterization there was quite weak, and they needed to do more, I think, with make that character a bit more of a focal point. Um, it all became a bit too plotty, and the film stopped really caring about telling us about the characters. Yeah, especially since I kind of got the sense before those scenes that he had already gotten over the mercenary bit, and he was committed to seeing it through. And then when he kind of when he kind of reverted back to the nope I'm in it for the money, um, it it didn't really work. Yeah, it felt like maybe they got the scenes out of order, or yeah, they just needed to do it to move the plot forward. Well, I guess we should discuss the special effects a little. They're fine. I mean, it's mainly yeah, it's mainly stunt work that we're talking about here. Yeah, there there isn't a whole lot of special effects going on. I mean, even the. A lot of it is just stock footage for the more, you know, wild bits and I probably models for the submarine scenes underwater where they're like um, having the game of cat and mouse with the Chinese submarine. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely it's probably miniature, miniature models made to look bigger, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's passable as an action it's an action thriller, um, but there isn't a great amount that you could see anyway, unless there's underlying things that we we don't know about that are actually special effects. But I, I don't think so. I think this is sort of mainly stunt work, um, but it's it's fine for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did you think of the, I guess this is a different um, thing, but what did you think of the widescreen cinematography? Um, did you think that it was worth shooting a submarine film in widescreen like that? Uh, no, 
<laughs> I think we'll put it put it this way. I think it was the certainly the lesser of the two submarine films um, visually. I think the cinematography in in the one we're going to discuss later was a lot more impressive. This, uh, not so much for me. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. And I guess before we leave it behind, I should just mention, like I did, I texted you about this after I watched it. Um, a, a nuclear weapon would not explode if the plane crashed. They would, I am almost certain that's one of the first fail-safe procedures they would plan for <laughs> um, when <laughs> designing this. Um, I can't imagine the planes taking off with nuclear weapons on them and then one scientist or engineer turning to the other and say, hey, um, what happens if it if they crash in the middle of L.A. or something? On the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. We should have thought of that. They thought of it. So the end of the film is actually kind of, um, well, wouldn't happen. Let's put it that way. And also, it seemed very small for a nuclear explosion, even allowing that the nuclear bomb went off it only kind of destroyed the little island that the professor was on um and didn't seem to do much other damage so kind of yeah it was a bit like the day of the dolphin situation wasn't it with the mine yeah that kind of explosion it wasn't anything major yeah yeah (laughs) oh well Unless, of course, there's somebody in the plane with the button and because the plane crashes, they hit the button. But I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's a Doctor Strange love situation where they're like, well, if we can't make the target, we may as well just blow up our own island, you know? Not gonna, not gonna let this bomb go to waste. <laughs> All right, so um, the next nominee this year was the Ant Horror Film, them um the them in the title referring to ants which are you know when they're swarming around they're scary enough uh in their normal size but in this film atomic energy has blown them up not like blown them into pieces but literally made them bigger like a honey i blew up the kid kind of situation (laughs) um yeah, yet again we're discussing atomic warfare, um, except that this one's indirectly critical, I guess, of the use of atomic weapons in the first place. You know, look what, look what you've done, you know, kind of thing. Um, look at the repercussions of using these weapons. And in this case, exaggerated to create a genre movie. But I think a really entertaining one, honestly. I think this is sort of shades of the twilight zone in the way that um the film unfolds and i I got a real kick out of this film i really enjoyed it Mm -hmm. oh yeah it's a it's a great film i saw it years ago um and remembered enjoying it and now watching it again it's it's very it's very campy and very over the top um in the best possible way you know i love these b horror films that get these big name or at least big enough name actors like James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, James Arness, Joan, we- Joan Weldon, um, to kind of flesh out the story uh, such as it is. And, you know, you, you learn a lot about ants in this story. There's that moment in the middle where the professor just basically gives a lecture about ant life. Uh, so it's educational, you know? 
I loved that lecture so much. And Edmund Gwen, this is the most I've ever liked him, actually. Um, he's terrifically convincing as a doctor. But this, the presentation um, that he makes to the government about the ants that involves this whole wildlife documentary explanation about how they reproduce and the way they behave and the problems that that poses for them when they when they're giant um it's just <laughs> all laid out so well both from his narration and from the script itself and i just loved that the screenwriters have taken the time to educate and present the situation rationally you know um you would never get that now in, in a blockbuster now it just wouldn't happen no. but the policies that they take in getting rid of the ants are determined by knowledge um, and that's how it should be you know, it's not just somebody just barging their way in there like Sylvester Stallone and taking a, a rocket launcher to the ants, you know, um, which is what you get now with probably The Rock in the lead. But it just, the film felt very well reasoned the whole way through, which for a film about giant ants, I think is, is quite an achievement, really, that it, it made sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um and in general, I think that the idea of insects becoming giants is a very good premise for a horror film, um, because, I mean, that would be very scary. I mean, obviously, if you have a gun, you know, guns win, but for the general public, you know, ants marauding the streets looking for sugar and uh, stinging everything in their path uh, would be... Yeah, it would be an extinction situation for sure. I did think all the sugar robberies were a bit silly. <laughs> the sugar bandits. Um. <laughs> yeah, it was like they they were trying to introduce this mystery early on as if the public wasn't sure, based on the very subtle poster, what was going to happen in the film. <laughs> but it was like, oh yeah, why is all this sugar going missing? Why are these sugar bandits you know, destroying homes and breaking people's backs. And then, oh my God, it's actually an ant. I never saw that coming. Yeah, the sugar was very silly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I was not expecting it to be the swarm, but you never know. Um, I didn't know if it was going to be so bad, it's good kind of thing. But actually, I think they do a lot of legwork. And I, I think this is probably the case with all three of the films we're discussing today, but particularly in terms of this one. There is very much a sense that science should be leading the way forward um, and we should be listening to the experts, which it's kind of come around back around now with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. But um, it's it's saying, you know, we shouldn't really be putting radiation out into the atmosphere without considering what we're doing to the environment, you know, um, because nowadays you do see scientists and experts as heroes in films. I just kind of like that the message that it's sending that it's um if you know about a subject you've got value. Mm -hmm. I just liked that. Yeah, and of course if they made this movie now there could be a scientist that everybody listens to but he would have to be um or she would have to be an action hero as well, right? It would have to be the rock as a scientist and also he could, you know, kick the kick ass himself if needed. And this is, I think, a much more realistic portrayal of the scientist, the bespectacled elderly man. And of course, um, 
uh, and of course, Joan Weldon as well. These are scientists who, yeah, they have the brains, they have the knowledge, so we listen to them, but they're not the ones who are in there with the machine guns blasting away at the queen, um, which I like that, you know, separation of roles and, you know, to each their own specialty is a good, uh, a good approach. Yeah. What about the communist allegory then? Is there a communist allegory? It, I mean, it seemed it to me. I mean, maybe. Um... The only thing in colour in the whole film is the title card, Them, which is red. Right, which is in deep red, yeah. Yeah, and kind of an invading horde um, coming at us that we can't, you know... Just a little bit, just one cell, I guess, is enough to spread to the whole country and destroy um, our way of life. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And also the nature of ants in general, right? Kind of this all for one nature, isn't it? Um, which you can see is the communist message too, you know. And I, I don't agree with the film's demonization of communism if that's what it's doing, because I don't think I think. Communism has some virtues, um, but is is not um, not what I would suggest would be the way forward. Um, but it, I, I mean, I can happily separate the fact that it's having a go at communism with how the film works dramatically, um, which and it is very accomplished dramatically. It's a solid piece of entertainment, um, mm-hmm. and I think you know it's kind of an artifact of the time that does does sort of tell us what people were concerned by. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you did you count the Wilhelm screams in it? No. <laughs> it uses it three times. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, the Wilhelm scream at this time was, I think, relatively new. It was only a couple of years uh, since it was uh, made. And yeah, they really loved it. The sound editor... Loved it so much he had it in the film three times. It's amazing. Uh, I do good love love a good Wilhelm scream. You know, it's very fun. <laughs> yeah, but of course, at the you know nowadays when it's in a film, it's there. You know, for comedy effect for film nerds. Um, and this was at the time when it was just a just a sound effect to use if you needed a character to scream, and for some reason the actor didn't want to do it. <laughs> or I don't know, maybe maybe it was already kind of becoming a joke sound effect, like an inside joke among sound editors. Yeah, maybe. It does make it seem all the more cheesy. Um Yeah. But I don't mind that. I mean the Twilight the Twilight Zone is kind of the um pinnacle for this kind of story, you know, they they just did although there weren't many monster um episodes that kind of um horror um mixing with the politics as well and you know social concerns at the time it's just amazing i could what put if the twilight zone's on tv at any point i just end up watching the whole episode because it just hooks you in so well um what did you think about the special effects then in them a bit more going on than uh hell and high water yeah, mm-hmm. I thought the, I thought the special effects were actually pretty good. I mean, yeah, the 
the ants were a bit um, cumbersome, I guess would be the best way to describe them. They do lumber about and probably they're least they're least scary when they're actually on screen. Um, I think that I think they could have taken a cue from some horror films that just kind of keep the monsters hidden in the shadows or something like that. Um, but definitely looked fine when they were on screen and good for the time and good for the budget that they had. Um, and, you know, they were able to really light them up and make it seem like it was normal sized humans battling huge ants. Um, so yeah, I, I was into it. I didn't see, I think I read that there is a print, like the original print of the film there is a shot where you can actually see the in, inner workings of the mechanical ant, um, but that has that was since uh, removed from distribution, so I don't think it exists anymore. Uh, okay, yeah, I I thought the ants were good uh, for the time, as you said, a little silly, obviously by today's standards, you know. Um, but also, I think there's a, you know, there must have been a lot of practical work gone into moving the ants. Uh, they must have had somebody in there. Um, so I, I think it's impressive, um, the movement of them. Um, and there's a lot of stunt sequences. There are a lot of think, things collapsing, blowing up, um, being engulfed by flames. So, yeah, I, I was kind of impressed. And I think especially, as you said, with the budget, will have been so much less, um, certainly than, than Helen Water, but also miles less than uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I imagine, which had a huge budget. So given that, I think, put into perspective, um, the special effects on them is really impressive. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think um, them also, we can see the legacy of some of the scenes in this in future sci-fi films like aliens like the destruction of the of the eggs you know with flamethrowers and searching out the queen um you can definitely see echoes of that in aliens uh 30 years later yeah so i i just happened to have um seen a video about this so it's fresh in my mind so i'm gonna just quickly mention that ants even with atomic energy helping them out could not be that big um, and the very, no, I, okay, I will buy that atomic energy can mutate insects into scary forms, but physically they couldn't be that big, um, because there's not enough oxygen in our atmosphere, um, to support an insect body that big. So there were giant insects back in the, you know, in the, um, millions and millions of years ago because our atmosphere had much more oxygen. But now our oxygen levels have dropped to the point where creatures without lungs can't get much bigger than the current insects we have. So if an, if an ant did grow even close to, or not even that close, much bigger than it is today, it just wouldn't be able to move or function. Um, so would, would that have been known in 1954? Probably, but even if it was, it wouldn't stop them making the film, right? 
I mean, when has reality ever stopped this kind of film going forward? I'm not saying it ruins the film. I'm just saying that, you know, we can drop as many atomic bombs as we want and explode them all over the place, and we don't have to worry about the consequences. No, it's not what I'm saying, obviously. <laughs> it's not quite as bad as the swarm where you've got people being killed by bees, but they, they don't have any stings on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, less... Uh, I can't buy that as much, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, shall we talk about the winner? Yeah, uh, those two films, they deemed their special effects not quite special enough because the award <laughs> went to uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which also won for Art Direction Color and was nominated for its film editing. So definitely the most successful of these nominees in terms of Oscars and I'm guessing in terms of box office because it was a pretty big hit. Yeah, and I believe um, the art direction, which is, I think it is very good, um, they even had the art, the sets in, I think, Disney World um, after this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it's now a kind of tourist attraction. But this is Disney's first film under Buena Vista um, distributors. And I think, like, obviously the success of this film must have paved the way for Around the World in 80 Days to be made um, um, yeah. a couple of years after this. And, of course, that would go on to win Best Picture somewhat controversially. Um, mm-hmm. But Hollywood, I think, was obviously interested in adapting classic works at this time. You've also got John Huston making Moby Dick in 1956. Um so yeah, and this is a huge. This is a really um, famous book that I have not read. But um, is it a worthy adaptation of it? I think so. I mean, it's been literally decades since I read it, so um, I can't. I don't remember too too many of the details. But just based on what I remember of the basic story of it and based on the film itself i think it's a great adaptation um and i think that it's uh, a really well done film i think it's definitely well done um from a visual standpoint um a cinematography nomination wouldn't have gone amiss either to be honest i think the film no, looks great definitely not um mm-hmm. i my problems is with the story and I think, you know, obviously Jules Verne, one of the most translated novelists ever. Um, but I find the story a little bit ponderous. Um, I think he obviously was very good at throwing out ideas about how science might affect the planet. And I think in, in his books, he's been actually quite prophetic about some things. Um, but I did, I wasn't compelled by this as a story. I think once they meet captain nemo the the film kind of stalled for me a little bit yeah it it gets a little didactic at points which i guess is kind of a feature of this kind of book and jules verne and his style is very much just writing as many words as possible so they're certain their audience gets it you know um so long monologues long kind of as you say ponderous um, sequences about the nature of science, the nature of life, etc. I, I think the film toes the line well 
in that it doesn't give over too much to these long speeches or long monologues for the most part. Um, and I do think that James Mason does an amazing job as Nemo, making him um, an actual person and not just kind of this, you know, philosophy fountain. But I, um, or just as a mouthpiece for Jules Verne, I guess. But yeah, I, I can kind of see how sometimes the film would, um, does drag a bit in those areas. And it could be, well, it can't really be shorter because it's too big budget and too epic to be shorter. So it kind of has to have that long runtime, um, which honestly is not even that long. I mean, it's just over two hours. I mean, when has James Mason not been good? I would argue he's good never been bad, honestly. And he does sell mm-hmm. sell this character. Um, but I think it's more a problem with the plotting. I've, I mean, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, I think his novel, it takes ha- until halfway through for them to actually begin the journey. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like maybe this is the other way around, where once they get on the journey, it it felt like it was sort of a bit of a a bit of a Robinson Crusoe situation where you you kind of supposed to be entertained by the exoticism um, and the cannibal scene I sequence I found a little bit um, strange. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was doing in the movie, um, and. Um, you know, the sort of the cannibal sort of um, chase Kirk Douglas back to the the Nautilus. And uh, and then you've got this, <laughs> the special effects, um, which I think is, uh, this is the only time where I thought the special effects were actually terrible, which is when the, the, the Nautilus is electrocuting the cannibals, um, which was really bad. Did you, did you think that was really a bit naff? Yeah. Yeah, that was awful. And also I just kind of I just kind of shook my head at that scene overall because you know, like you say it's it's kind of weird scene where Ned gets back having awoken literally every person on the island and they're all chasing him. Um and Nemo is very calm and just says, you know, you invaded their privacy. It makes sense they're invading ours. And it kind of looks like it's setting up maybe a dialogue between Nemo and the chief who's entering. Like maybe he's going to talk to them, demonstrate understanding, um, yeah. maybe camaraderie. But then, no, he just electrocutes them and wa- and they watch them laughing as they jump off the ship. It's such a dumb scene and a dumb way out and kind of out of character, I thought, for Nemo um, to do that given the rest of his beliefs and the rest of his uh character but oh well yeah i think i i like that one of the the themes of the film seems to be a bit sort of like searching for something that isn't there um mm-hmm. and nemo himself is this quite sad character really that um sort of a, a slightly elitist I would say in sort of thinking he's above everybody um when he, in fact he's actually below everybody but uh literally literally that's what I mean yeah um so <laughs> uh, 
But I, I read that that character does not die in the novel. So it's interesting that they decided to kill him in, in, in the film. I mean, I guess it may be a, a code thing. Because he does, he does kill people, so he his character does have to pay some kind of price for that um, under the rules of the time. And Disney do do love a good villain death, don't they? Mm-hmm. But they give him kind of a a nice death, even though he has to die. He he dies, um, you know, in front of his giant window, looking out at the sea that he loved. So he gets kind of a. Uh, calm and um, I guess relaxing death yeah um, I liked the the documentary feel to the film it, at times I think in the fact that it's shot on, on location some of it in the Bahamas um, and they use real animals they've got turtles um uh, lots of underwater scenes. So I think that adds a little bit of realism, um, uh, which I guess they could afford um, mm-hmm. with, with the amount of money they had to spend on this. And of course, you've got other animals. I think we have to mention Esmeralda, the sea lion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. She's the if best. you ever want a film in which Kirk Douglas serenades a sea lion with his mandolin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I read that they all the cast basically had to have like herring in their pockets the whole time to give to Esmeralda as a as a reward, <laughs> so she would do the do the acting. Um, I don't think it feels too exploitative um, in that way, you know. Like Doctor Doolittle feels like oh god, they're they're dressing up a sea lion in a bonnet and hurling it off a cliff, you know, which is it iconic moment but um it it feels like they're exploiting the animals in that movie where i feel like it's kind of okay here it doesn't feel that bad yeah yeah um yeah and esmeralda i think is a good kind of character throughout um loyal to nemo but not like in an absurd way and then obviously you know when she befriends uh, Ned and and um, Peter Laurie, uh, it feels it feels very natural, like just like a dog will, you know, sometimes leave you for a friend who feeds them more. Not based on reality. <laughs> but we've got Paul Lucas playing a good guy in this for once. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> but yeah, I thought the acting was pretty stellar across the board. Really, I didn't. I don't didn't have a problem with a single performance, so it's uh Yeah, yeah. They did uh all four of the lead actors doing very well in their roles and um really taking it seriously, which I appreciated. Um in general I think the film I like when fantasy films take themselves seriously enough that it keeps the whimsy but still feels reality, you know, still feels like humans uh, in the roles and not just caricatures. So I think this film hits that balance really well. Yeah. So what about the effects? We we did mention the electrocution scene uh, where you've got electric vault, vaults coming off the submarine. It's just really fake. Yeah. I think it's all uphill from there, though. Um, 
I think that the other special effects, the underwater effects, are quite good. Um, the and the, even the giant squid scene, which again um, suffers from, you know, being of the time, giant animal, uh, mechanical animal sets don't age particularly well, but it's okay. Um, I am glad that they decided to reshoot it because um, originally they shot the whole sequence in daylight in calm waters. Um, I'm not sure why they decided to do that, but they rightly decided to reshoot it in the dark and with more waves and a kind of in the middle of a storm, which served to kind of hide some of the more clunky movements of the squid or at least um, distract from them a little bit. So that was smart. Uh, from a production standpoint. Yeah, I was really impressed by the squid scene, actually. I thought it was really impressive. Um, and again, the, the, the sheer the puppetry involved with moving the arms, or maybe not puppetry, but some kind of mechanics going on anyway. Um, and the opening of the eyes, etc. I, I think you can see there's a lot of time and effort gone into it, so I like that. Um and yeah, everything underwater. I mean, they did. They went off to the Bahamas um, to film the underwater scenes, but it, it is impressive. I, I think, given the budget, it could be better, um, especially especially with the electrocution thing. I just can't get over that. It looked like um, yeah. When you see these <laughs> knockoff like Jason and the Argonauts, that one from the seventies, and you've got like. TV movie effects that just looked like that, you know, um, it not not up to Disney standards that that bit. So that kind of soured me a little bit on it. But um, overall, I think it's it's uh, quite good on the special effects front. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure there's any way to make that electrocution scene work. Um, not only from a special effects standpoint, but also from a story standpoint. So yeah, I think they would have been better just cutting it or finding some other way to repel the uh, repel the attackers. Well, couldn't they have done like spikes or something? Spikes, yeah. Maybe that would have been a little too brutal um, for a, for what is pretty much a children's film, right? It's a Walt Disney production. It's meant to be a family movie, and seeing I don't know, seeing spikes rip through. Uh, a bunch of feet probably <laughs> might have might have given some children nightmares. <laughs> I mean, I still have nightmares from the nail in the foot scene from Home Alone. I can't imagine seeing, you know, a whole submarine's worth of nails shooting up through feet. Well, that actually happened to me. I stood on a nail oh. and it went through oh. my foot. Like, not, oh, dear. not all the way, but it pierced the skin. Um, Ugh. So that, yeah, and just remembering that is uh, bad enough. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's nothing compared to Bambi. Bambi's traumatic. <laughs> I suppose that's true, yeah. Yeah, I guess nobody's mother gets shot in this film, so that's uh, still below that. So uh, we have these three films, and of course 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea emerged triumphant. Um, also, as I said earlier, winning art direction color, I think pretty deservedly, um, just glancing at the other nominees in that category, uh, lost film editing to the best picture on the waterfront, um, probably deserved there, I think. 
Um, so, of course, the category only with three nominees this year, but um, can you think of any snubs in the category? Well, the one that comes to mind would be Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, which is another monster one and another mechanical one. Um, it figures that that might have been in the conversation, given that they nominated them. Um, and also maybe The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, which inexplicably got a Best Actor nomination this year. Um, but that seemed popular and... Um, I, from memory, I remember effects being in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say Creature from the Black Lagoon as well, um, but in terms of like standout special effects, um, I think these. I think definitely two of these three kind of rise to the top uh, pretty easily. So I don't know. You know, I don't know if expanding the category to five nominees would have you know would have done much good in the long run. Wider observations on 1954? Well, usually we would start with um, something that won. I want to talk about something that got shafted, which is Rear Window this year, snubbed in several categories, including Best Picture. Over three coins in the fountain and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers nominated instead. I mean, what the hell were people smoking in 1954? (laughs) I don't know. It's it's an awful um, oversight. And those two films, I mean, I can't stand those films. Um, Three Coins in the Fountain, um, just from a trivia standpoint, is one of the few films to win every nomination it got except Best Picture. Um, oh, wow. Because, yeah, it won um, song and, song and um, cinematography, color, and... Um, and I thought I thought it won one more. Maybe that's it. But yeah, terrible film, um, and ridiculous that it got Best Picture nomination over Rear Window and over Sabrina, for that matter. Um, and A Star Is Born also uh, not nominated for Best Picture. Um, and of course, this was the year of Judy Garland's great robbery, according to Groucho Marx. Um, losing uh losing best actress uh to grace kelly for the country girl um what do you make of that uh by the way we may maybe we'll do best actress 54 one of these days but just um while we're on the subject yeah i was going to say we could um we could do any of these categories couldn't we because we've uh we've only done effects but judy garland made me cry in a star is born i thought she was tremendous and it's it's kind of sad because I think Grace Kelly did very well in The Country Girl and maybe the best I've seen her. Uh, that and Rear Window anyway. Um, so I do feel like she won for one of her best performances, but at the expense of Garland, it leaves a sour note for me, especially that Garland never won one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is pretty sad. I have to admit, this is the one Star is Born version that I haven't seen yet. So um, it's definitely high on the list of films that I need to see. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Yep. Um, we've got On the Waterfront winning uh, eight Oscars, tying From Here to Eternity and Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. 
and probably a deserved win in most of these categories. Um, what do you think of Eva Marie Saint? Do you think she's lead or supporting? I, I, I would call her supporting, I think. Um, she's definitely got a lot of screen time and has a has a large effect on the plot, but I think overall she's supporting. I don't. I wouldn't call them co-leads. Okay, I remember it being borderline um, when it, I watched it. It is borderline. It's one of those borderline ones. But um, of course, we've we've talked about this in the past. How you don't think any film deserves five acting nominations, but of course, this one um, famously receiving three for best supporting actor. Um, but all of them losing to the Barefoot Contessa, Edmund O'Brien, which is another kind of wacky bit of Oscar history. I guess they just sort of cancelled each other out, similar to the Tom Jones girls in uh, yeah. 63, and also the Mutiny on the Bounty guys in 35. But yeah, I don't agree with all three getting nominated. From memory, I really liked Carl Malden's performance. Not Rod Steiger? Oh, man. Uh, well, Carl Malden's the one I remember, but it's been years and years since I watched that movie. Yeah, I don't know. Rod Steiger, to me, is one of the great performances in that film, um, and definitely one of the great supporting performances, if nothing else. But that just goes to show, doesn't it, that we, that's why none of them won, because they all sort of... Yeah. Loyalties were split there, Um and Edmund O'Brien, I remember being quite good in the Barefoot Contessa. He's good. I mean, he's nothing amazing. And Ava Gardner as well, I think, is good in that film and could easily have gotten a nomination. Yeah. Yeah, one more thing about 1954 is that um, one of my favorite films uh, of all time, the French film Forbidden Games, um, received a Best Story nomination this year and had won the special award, the honorary award for foreign language film two years prior to this. Um, so arguably uh, one of the only films to win in two separate years non-consecutively. Actually, it didn't win, nominated, I should say. Um, but of course, it wasn't nominated for foreign language film in 1952. It was just kind of given to it. Um, but had to wait two years for its writing nomination but that is one that i have not seen oh, i man. have not yet seen that film which is perhaps criminal um <laughs> but yeah every um, everybody's got great things to say about it so i'm sure it's amazing yeah all right so we both have assignments i have to watch a star is born and, and you have to watch forbidden games okay right. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess now we come to the question of why did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea win this Oscar and was it close? Well, it's the biggest budget. Um, it's the most famous source material. It does look very good visually. Um, so I don't think it was close. I think this probably won on a landslide. Yeah. Yep, agreed. Aside from the questionable electrocution scene, I think they really uh, went all out with the effects, given their big budget and given their resources. I think they did a great job. Um, and, you know, Them is a kind of a low-budget B-movie, I think kind of snuck in, um, based, based on how, you know, because it was a good, it was a hit, 
um, for what it was, and people enjoyed it, and I'm sure the special effects uh, branch of the Academy appreciated the work. Um, and I, I don't know why Helen Highwater is there. Um, there is, there's some special effects in it, but yeah, no, I, but long story short, yeah, I don't, I don't think this was close at all. Um, I don't think there was much suspense in this category who was going to win. Yeah. So I have a feeling, I have a feeling our ranks are going to line up again. Um, but yeah, let's rank, uh, go ahead. Well, at three, I've got Helen High Water. <clears throat> there wasn't a whole lot of effects in it. Um, I think the stunt work was good, but there were no points where I was like, oh my God, you know, this, how have they done this? Um, so that had to be bottom for me. Yeah. Number two, I've got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It is close. It's a close call for me, but the electrocution is just... <laughs> just completely put me off i just can't <laughs> i can't see past that um if it wasn't for the electrocution i'd probably put it at number one uh but as it is at number one i've got them and i think it's great that this film got a nomination um, and i think it's great that people will check it out because of that because it's a really fun well thought out monster movie yeah um, agreed on everything, but I just I do have Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea on top, um, and them at number two, and maybe that's unfair. Maybe I'm being elitist, uh, giving it to a big budget film where they didn't maybe didn't have to work quite so hard to overcome the limitations of budget. Um, and I get I definitely appreciate that in them. I think they stretched their resources to the limit, and it really um, paid off. But just 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a beautiful film, and so the effects look beautiful as well. So um, it inched it higher for me. And uh, despite the electrocution scene, which I completely agree, um, drags it down considerably, but not quite not quite to number two. Yeah. Okay, so we have a website, categorically.oscars.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Categorically O. What have we got next on Patreon? Next on Patreon, we have uh, Best Supporting Actor, 2008. The people, once again, chose from uh, some options and thankfully spared me the torture of having to watch Oliver again. Um, So the nominees for Supporting Actor in 2008 were Josh Brolin in Milk, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Doubt, Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road, and the winner, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, the famous posthumous win. And our next regularly scheduled episode will be Best Documentary Feature, 1976, another new category for us. Um, and those, those nominees were Hollywood on Trial, Off the Edge, People of the Wind, Volcano, an inquiry into the life and death of Malkin Lowry, and the winner in that one, Harlan County, USA. You could not get five more different subjects for a documentary category. Um, So it's going to be very eclectic next week, and we've got Nick Davis along to talk about that, which is very exciting. Yes. 
So we'll be back next week with a new regular episode and in two weeks with that bonus episode. See you then. Die.